In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com. Welcome to It's Personal, Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Welcome to It's Personal, Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway, here with Cameron Conway. And last week, we were talking all about your will. What happens if you have one? What happens if you don't? And ultimately, if you hear nothing else from that uh, particular podcast, the takeaway is, regardless of age, regardless of marital status, if you don't have one, now is absolutely the time to get your will put into place. And if you don't, you're just admitting to yourself that you think the government can do a better job deciding your future than you can. That's right. And... uh In that session, I had briefly mentioned that there were different ways that different objects or assets are taxed when someone passes away. So we decided that this week we would follow up on that conversation and essentially cover some of the more popular items that people will commonly have forming an estate, as well as ways that you can look at transferring those assets to the people that you love. That's right. We'll cover everything from housing to investments to, I don't know, old dusty baseball cards if you want to also. That is part of the deal. And spoiler alert there, if your old dusty baseball cards are under $1,000, you might not have any tax to worry about, which is always a nice thing. But you can't just sell one baseball card at a time and say, you know what, this this is the value of this. The CRA will look at the value of the collection as a whole. Exactly. So if you have a stack of Gretzky rookie cards, you'll probably get hit. And also congratulations on collecting those. Anyway, let's get back on track. So let's just do a quick 30 second overview of what we talked about last week when it comes to wills and how these things are moved around. Sure. So we talked about BC. In BC here, we have something called WESA. It's the Wills, Estates and Succession Act. In Ontario, they have the Family Law Act. What these things have in common is that both will have their own preferential ways of treating intestancy, just in terms of how the estate will be divided. So that's if you don't have a will, there will usually be a preferential share to the spouse, some form of equalization, and they'll also be looking at any other financial dependents that you might have, which is usually children. Uh, uh, The Family Law Act in Ontario is a little bit different than what we have here in that 
the spouse actually has a choice, even if there is their will, if they want to follow these guidelines in the Family Law Act or if they want to follow the actual will. So that's a little bit crazy uh, when I read that coming from someone here in BC. But um, stranger things have happened and estate law is ever-changing and very much dynamic and also very much dependent on what happens in the courts. So something that you have to be constantly up to date on if uh, if it's something that you're following or trying to plan for. Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts here because essentially when you pass, it's just assumed that everything you had has been sold, quote unquote, and then it's just dealing with the market values, taxes, transfers, and all that fun stuff. But like we said, today we want to talk about how these different asset classes get handled in this situation. That's right. And that's a key point. So when someone passes away, all of their assets are sold or deemed to be sold. So we've pretended that they're sold on that day. And typically beneficiaries will look at mom and dad's stuff and say, oh, okay, this is what I know the value is today. I'm going to receive that value. And with that thought process, you're actually missing quite a bit. There can be taxes, there can be probate fees, there can potentially be a lot of waiting for the estate to get administered, which can have opportunity costs associated with it. And I mean, the more things that are in the estate, in the probate process, the higher the costs typically that your accountant or your lawyer will be charging you just because there's more stuff to deal with. Okay, so let's just start breaking down this list now. Uh, let's talk about property that kind of falls outside of the will because there's a couple of interesting things that can happen here, right? Definitely. So let's start with one of the most common and also one of the least popular. And by that, I mean life insurance. So I'm putting this one right up front in the hopes that you'll actually listen to this and uh, shut this thing down later on if you get bored. Yeah, we pay attention to the analytics. We know what's going on here. <laughs> That's right. Oh, and, and thank you, by the way, because most of you are listening to the end and we're actually really impressed by that. It's very, very cool. Um, and so to circle back to life insurance, like I said, it gets a bad rap sometimes, especially permanent insurance plans, because they can cost a few bucks, right? They, But they do also have a very useful purpose. So a life insurance policy is not taxable on death, and that becomes a very interesting planning tool to help equalize an estate, because really you're trading today's premium dollars for the future value that your beneficiaries are going to get tax-free. And like I said, that tax-free point should be underlined several, several, several times. And in a lot of cases, it can be the difference of the estate being able to keep assets for distribution to the beneficiaries versus the estate having to sell off assets to do things like cover the taxes and get that coveted clearance certificate from the CRA before the estate can be distributed. Yeah, one of the more popular strategies we see is people using these insurance policies when they know they're going to be passing real estate property to their kids. So this kind of helps cover the transfer taxes on that. So the kids don't receive the property and could have thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in tax bills waiting for them. So this just kind of helps pass things along without adding the strain onto the kids. 
Right. And by real estate properties, we're specifically referring to investment properties that have capital gains tax associated to them and not necessarily the principal residence, your house that you live in, which is tax free at this point in time anyways, uh, when it is sold or when you pass away. And not just investment properties. So that's going to also apply to things like cottages, second homes, vacation properties. That's right. For the principal residence tax exemption, you can only have one. So if you have multiple properties or even properties and land or anything like that, any other interest in some form of property, there are tests that will determine which one is your residence, which one are you actually living in. Oh, it's your home. It's it's where you are on a regular basis. It's usually where your mail comes. And spoiler alert, CRA has that address. So it's uh, kind of hard to disprove where you've been living in a lot of cases. But anything other than that is typically going to have some type of investment read, some type of capital gain. And especially with the way real estate values have changed dramatically in the last little while, that's changing that conversation. So a strategy that we've looked at for clients when they have large RIFs, which is a registered retirement income fund, which is fully taxable either in the year of withdrawal during your lifetime or fully taxable to the estate later on, is people will slowly melt down. And by melt down, I mean take money out strategically <laughs> from these uh, from these taxable RIFs and put the money into a life insurance policy to convert a taxable asset, fully taxable on your death, to a tax-free asset, which is the life insurance policy, which will benefit your beneficiaries that much more because a good life insurance policy will also have the power of multiplication. What I mean by that is you're not just getting your premium dollars back you're getting X amount more. So a good life insurance advisor will be able to run a comparison for you that will talk about the internal rate of return on your policy. So you're not just looking at it as, oh, I'm buying life insurance for the kids one days. You can actually look at it as an investment. And how much return can I get without taking market risk? Now, I mean, there are some policies that do have elements of investing in them, but um, for the most part, based on your age, based on your mortality, there are calculations that can be run that can essentially say, is this a good deal or not? And once you've taken in the taxation, once you've looked at converting over a taxable asset that will be taxed at a much lower rate during your lifetime, as it could potentially be to your estate later on, it can start to make a lot of sense. But that's enough boring you for today with uh, the subject of life insurance. If you want to talk about it a little bit more and how it specifically applies to you, and if you're in BC, feel free to give us a call. We're happy to talk for hours and hours, which is probably more than you can handle on that subject. Okay, so let's just uh, circle back to this property debate. So let's talk about how property can move after death and what are some of the conditions and what are some of the things we could take advantage of, really. So when we're looking at property, and by property I mean real estate, the key aspect, so what you really want to be aware of is how is it registered. And by that I mean who is the legal owner of the property. And not only that, is it something called joint tenancy 
or is it called tenancy in common? So if you don't know off the top of your head, you might have to dig through your old file folders or contact whoever had drawn up those documents for you in the first place. Most people say, oh, you know, this belongs to me and my wife for me and my husband and kind of end the conversation there. But the actual ownership structure makes a huge difference. Uh, joint tenancy essentially passes the ownership share directly on to the survivor outside of the will, outside of probate, which is huge. Tenancy in common, on the other hand, is where your share becomes part of your estate later on and will be distributed according to your will. So in that situation, a couple different things have happened. You've pulled it into the will, you've pulled it into the probate process. So read, there could be potentially probate fees there. There could be long, long, long delays just in terms of if you're having to sell the property, if you're trying to get this money ultimately to your beneficiary. And also you don't want to fall victim to the rule of unintended consequences where you're a couple, you've been cohabitating for a while, you think this is going to your partner, but oops, you know, when this thing was set up a number of years ago, either they were not put on title at all, or the ownership structure was something other than what it should be at this point in time, given your current relationship and your current relationship status. So the best thing that you can do is just do a quick double check to make sure that everything is in good order there. Or like I said, call the lawyer or notary that had prepped these documents for you. They can just take a quick look and let you know if you're good to go or if you need to schedule an appointment and get that adjusted. But typically, if you have someone that you're in a long-term enduring relationship with, it can make quite a bit of sense to put them on title so that that asset stays outside of probate and outside of the will. I will just put one big caution on that. Sometimes people will look at this in relation to their adult children. Now, you have to be very, very careful about that because, like we'd said earlier, for a principal residence to be tax-free, you can only have one. So if you've added an adult child to your property, you need to be very aware of what the implications of that are. Specifically, do they own another property? Will this be continued? Specifically, do they own another property as a principal residence? And is there the possibility that this would become an investment property for their portion of ownership? So again, something for you to review with your lawyer when you're doing a review of this as well. Like I said, you don't want to fall victim to the role of uh, unintended consequences. Well, hopefully that kind of helps. So let's move on to something different now. Let's talk about your savings accounts. And we should probably preface this. This isn't just always between spouses or people who are common law. Things can get messy sometimes when you have like a parent and a child with the same savings account. And you dug out a pretty interesting court case about that, right? Yes, this court case particularly is a great example of someone's intentions maybe not necessarily being documented properly, and what can result as a result of that. So specifically, I'm referring to PCOR versus PCOR, which went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And what it was, was a daughter who was helping out her dad, and she was put on title at the bank on a joint bank account that they shared. 
And throughout his lifetime, dad was transferring more and more money into this joint bank account that they had together. And ultimately, when he passed away, her other siblings came out and said, well, wait a second, was this savings account actually meant just for you to inherit? Or was it something that was actually supposed to form part of the estate for us to benefit from as well as beneficiaries of the estate? So you can see how that might get a little bit sticky. So essentially, she was taken to court by her siblings, and there were some questions around something called a resulting trust and an advancement. So what that means is, were you holding this for us, or was it advanced to you as part of your share of the will or of the residue of the estate, which should then be deducted from your share so that we, as the siblings, ultimately get more? And when the courts took a look at this, and like I said, it made it all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada, they essentially said that there wasn't enough evidence to to substantiate that this was an advancement. And when they looked at the case and how this kind of had played out, I mean, in this case, the daughter was uh, maybe less financially stable, had a lower income job, that kind of thing, the judge did hold that the father was trying to gift some money during his lifetime for her benefit. So create a beneficial interest to his daughter, to the exclusion of the others. But that's something that becomes very important. Joint bank accounts are an incredibly useful tool in terms of taking money out of the estate. And when done correctly, you can move a lot of money that would otherwise get locked up in an estate account over into the hands of someone that can use it for your benefit after you're gone. Yeah, but we have to say that you have to make sure you're documenting everything. This kind of goes back to our power of attorney talk too, where all of these thoughts and intentions you may have, you have to write it down somewhere and it has to be clear and concise and somewhere where people can find it. because. What you write down before is going to have a big impact on the future and how all this stuff could get decided and resolved and what would happen if there was a fight that broke out over it. Your written intentions can help clear a lot of things up. So it's best just to write it down and be clear instead of just assuming or hoping for the best. Oh, yeah. And in this case as well, while we're talking about joint bank accounts right now, this can also translate over to that real estate conversation, what we just had about putting another person on title there. So always best to have your lawyer help you with that kind of documentation, because not only will they know what to say, they'll know how to word it in a way that the courts will understand and recognize the intention, maybe better than we or you could have done on your own if you were kind of trying to come up with something off the top of your head. Well, let's move on to the next one. Uh, Let's talk about what happens when you own a business, either outright or a certain percentage of it. How does all this get moved around? Because this can get complicated, especially if you're in a situation with other owners. Oh, definitely. So when we're talking about your business, we're talking about a separate legal entity, not you kind of running a side hustle that's based on your ability to to get out and, and do a service and then come home, that kind of thing. If it is a business, you should have a shareholder's agreement in place. A shareholder's agreement is essentially a what happens if document, and it should apply to not only yourself, but 
anyone else who has an ownership stake, any partners that you have in the business and cover things like death, like disability and cover who really should take control. Where is this going to go? Uh, shareholders agreement is usually accompanied with a buy-sell structure. Um, typically, something like that will be funded by life insurance because in a lot of cases, especially if a business has grown a lot over the past few years or many, many years, no one has the kind of cash kicking around to suddenly, especially if it's unexpected, pay out their partners. So we always encourage people to get these things in place at the beginning when things are good, when people are healthy, when you can actually qualify for the life insurance. And the cautionary tale that I always hear here is you don't want to be in business with your partner's spouse who might not have the expertise. And that's what can happen if these things aren't properly structured. Yeah, the surviving partners may not want to work with the spouse or the children. So really this becomes key in making sure that your inheritors get your fair cut out of the business and then the continuing partners can still have a good thriving business at the same time. Well, that's it. And you can go beyond the buy sell and kind of say, have some conversations ahead of time about who would you want to have control if you're the controlling interest at this point in time, so that there's not a big argument happening later on. And we'll, um, we'll put our own little plug in there. If this is an area that you need help in, feel free to give us a call at Braun Financial. If you're in the BC area, we're happy to help. Okay, so let's just rapid fire uh, a few things going on right now. Because a lot of this is kind of in the same ballpark where it talks about uh, money you are receiving either as benefits or investment income. So what happens to your pension plan, especially if you are married common law? Okay, so when you set up your pension plan, you would have chosen at that point in time how you want it to continue to your spouse. So you could have set it out so that it's joint for the rest of your life to your spouse or partner. You could have set it out so that it reduces and pays out a certain percentage to your partner, or you could have set it up with a guarantee period. Typically 10 years is the lowest where they would receive a commuted value payment, which is really just a lump sum. And then the benefits would stop. So a lot of the pre-planning on this happens ahead of time, which is good. It happens while you're here, you're healthy, and you can make these decisions about your entitlement. And typically, before you start receiving your pension income, you have to have made these decisions because the amount of money that you're going to be getting from your pension on a monthly basis is directly related to these kinds of decisions that you'll have to make. Now, all of that was specific to a defined benefit pension plan. If it's a defined contribution pension plan or even a locked in account, those are typically, like all pension plans, considered marital property. So your spouse might actually have to sign off on if you want someone other than them to be the beneficiary. Uh, they might also have to sign off if you decide you want to take money out and not convert it into a continuous income stream during your retirement as well. So further to your pension plan, there are other benefits that people with pension money can take advantage of. One of those is pension splitting. So if you have a pension and you meet the age requirements, you can typically have up to half of that show up on your spouse's tax return if they have lower income than you do. This can still be done in the year of death. It's just going to be prorated 
by the time you were alive during that particular year. So something important to keep in mind that can be helpful to your spouse as well as if they qualify for things like the pension credit, that can help them out on their taxes. Well, this is probably a good way to transition then to government benefits. We'll we'll talk more specifically about like uh, CPP OAS right now, but there's a whole bunch of other things we can talk about in a later episode. So what happens to all of the money you have built up in CPP over the years and how does any of that get transferred to a spouse or kids and what can you do with OAS afterwards? Yes, so those are the two most common government benefits that people receive and they are treated differently. First off, there's a death benefit that's paid out from CPP. It can be up to $2,500. So make sure that that's something that you apply for and claim if you are the surviving spouse. Second, there's a top-up that is potentially available to your CPP if you are collecting CPP already. Typically the way it works, it's a big convoluted formula, but if I was going to try and simplify it as much as I could, I would just say that they're not going to exceed the maximum amount for what you would have received as an individual. So there can be a top up if you're receiving less than the maximum right now, but If you're already receiving the maximum, there may not be much of an adjustment, if there is an adjustment at all. But again, we leave that to the good folks over at Service Canada because their their calculations are shrouded in mystery and they keep them under lock and key. So we, uh, we let them handle those for us. Now, old age security is something that's different entirely. Once you're gone, that benefit is stopped. So please don't count on the old age security of your spouse to continue beyond their lifetime. Just enjoy the money while you have it. And as a side note to that, with old age security being income tested, a lot of people, once their spouse is gone, find themselves in a position where their income is higher anyways, because maybe now the whole pension is on their tax return as opposed to just half. Maybe some of the investment income that has come over from their spouse is also on their tax return. In a lot of cases, they would have had to have given up old age security anyways, just because old age security is clawed back based on an income test that's done every year. Well, since we're talking about uh, pensions, we should probably bring up the topic of RIFs. So this is what happens to your RSP after you turn 71 and you're forced to take withdrawals out of it. Not everyone uses up their whole RIF before they pass. So what happens with that income? That's right. And well, 71 is the you must do something about this age, uh, a lot of people will choose to turn their RSPs over into a RIF a little bit earlier, usually when they stop working, just so that they can start, sorry, I made that sound like a good thing, just so that they can start paying some taxes when their income is lower versus having it taxed to the estate later on, which if you have a lot of other assets in your estate can be a much larger tax bill. So there is some strategy in there as well. So in this investment category, I'm going to kind of draw a line in the sand here and I'm going to talk specifically to what we do. We use insurance company contracts, typically segregated funds for planning because they have huge estate planning probate bypass, benefits, using named beneficiaries, things like that. Your bank most likely 
will not do it that way. So there can be very different rules at your bank versus with what we're able to do for you or anyone else really who's going to use an insurance company contract for your investments. Uh, okay, so why don't you lead us through what you specifically would do? Because this is going to sound a lot different than people who just have a mutual fund. Yes, it will. So I tell anyone who has a RIF that it should be their spouse that's named as their beneficiary. Oh, why are you so adamant that the spouse should be named as a beneficiary in this case? So in this case, the spouse has the ability to receive what's called a tax-deferred spousal rollover. And essentially, that's a fancy way of saying that your RIF can become theirs tax-deferred, which means they will have to pay tax on it later, versus your estate having to pay all of the taxes on the whole balance right now, and then someone else inheriting whatever is left. So the idea is, let's say you didn't name your spouse and you named a child or a friend or a charity and other assets in your estate went to your spouse instead. Well, the value of your RIF could be substantially diminished by the taxes. So not only are you now giving less to the other person who's not your spouse, you've missed an opportunity to transfer over a greater value, a higher investment value to the person that you love the most. So essentially in this case, the RIF is getting taxed totally all at once when it transfers over rather than going to a spouse. It would just be taxed at the marginal rate that would have been to you during your lifetime, except it's going to under your spouse's name. Yes, there's full income inclusion on a RIF at the date of death. So essentially, it's not just in your RIF, it's whatever else also forms part of your estate. Because the taxation to your RIF, it's taxable to the estate, not to the named beneficiary, which also adds the layer of complication of if you've done this by accident, making sure that there's enough money in the estate to pay those taxes because the beneficiary is going to be sitting there saying, hey, I want my money um, and something might have to be sold. So to circle back really quickly to our use of segregated funds in these types of scenarios, there's two different ways that we can structure these. Both have good reasons to do. The first is something called a successor annuitant. What that essentially does is it sets your spouse up as the second person to control that particular portion of money or that particular investment account. So in that case, they essentially just inherit your RIF exactly as the way it is. All the same investments stay intact. Nothing is sold. Nothing changes. It continues on easy peasy. It's actually very, very simple from an administrative perspective as well. It's just boom, they just change over who controls the contract and the payments continue and life is good. The other way to do it is segregated fund contracts do have death benefit guarantees that are reduced proportionately by any money that you take out of the contract. The guarantee usually but not always starts at 100% of what you've deposited. Sometimes it's 75%, depends on the circumstances. But um, if that guarantee is something that's important to you, we can trigger the guarantee and still do a tax-deferred rollover to your spouse. So that's pretty cool as well. And there are some additional rules for RIFs if there is a financially dependent child 
or a grandchild, there can be some rollover provisions available for them as well. So what we like to say to people on this, when you're looking at your RIF, your retirement, registered retirement income fund, and you have other assets that you want to get to other beneficiaries, make sure the RIF goes to your spouse and do your equalization in other places. Okay, well, let's uh, talk about TFSAs quick then, because they're a nice little investment tool, but there are caps. So what, what happens if you have a, like a fully maxed out TFSA that you just didn't get a chance to do anything with? That's right. So what we like to do here is we set the spouse up as successor annuitant. I do believe the banks have something called successor holder, and I'm not 100% sure of how it works, but I think it's along the same lines. What we can do is we can have your spouse take over your account as it is. That means your spouse can't add any new money into it, but there is the ability for them to keep the money that you do have in there tax-free for the rest of their lives. So that can grow as an investment as long as they choose to hold it and not take any money out. And once they control the money and control the contract, they can make their own decisions about how they want to invest the money. And I think, uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I think with the banks, the tr- it's essentially a transfer. I don't think they keep the account. I think it's essentially they're able to transfer a certain portion of the room into their own TFSA. Well, with ours, like we've seen this with a few clients where, yeah, the one spouse will pass and we can just roll over the nameplate of the one TFSA to the surviving spouse. But yeah, they can't make any new deposits into it, but they can make some withdrawals. So let's say it's fully maxed out. It's just over $80,000 and it's bringing in dividend and it's growing. Pull out a couple grand a year and you're okay. You just can't put anything new into it, but you can still keep putting money in your own personal TFSA. So we have a few instances where people have multiple TFSAs. We have the one we can deposit into, and we have the other one with all kinds of red flags saying, do not deposit, withdraw only. (laughs) That's right. But again, what a great tool that if you still have a good lifespan ahead of you, you can keep growing this as long as you're physically able, right? And with no implications to your estate later on. Okay, let's just hit up uh, non-registered contracts pretty quick. This is sort of the uh, no frills, nothing fancy tacked on, but for some people, this can be a large chunk of their investment portfolio. Sure, and I'll make this quick because I know we're kind of at the end of our time here, but um, typically everything that we've said previously about ownership structures, this is what matters in this case. Who is named as an owner? on the non-registered contract. So you need to consider the ownership structure to see when capital gains will be triggered. So non-registered contracts, especially if you've held them for a long time, can come with a few surprises. If you're invested in something like a mutual fund or a segregated fund where you've held the same fund for a long time, there might be some unrealized gains or losses that have been running in the background for years and years and years. Now, on someone's passing, there's a typical trigger and all of those gains and or losses become due. So if there's multiple owners, that can change that situation. But something that I like to caution people is ownership, it it holds true in life and death. So let's say you have a husband and a wife that are both named jointly, so they have 50-50 ownership of a non-registered contract. That means that each year, let's say they're invested in a seg fund or a mutual fund, and they have some capital gains 
They're each going to receive a tax slip each year, and they're each going to have to pay taxes on those gains during their lifetime. So you can't just kind of sneak someone else on without having some taxation needing to be shared. So the important thing here is to look not just at death, but also at life and what the tax implications are going to be the whole way through. So as you can see, there's lots of moving parts and there's lots of planning work that can be done with regards to how your different assets are structured in contemplation of eventually passing them to your loved ones. So even if you're a long ways away from that, it's always good to have a good understanding of what the costs will be, what the taxes will be, what the planning process should look like, and how long it will take. So that's something that we do for clients over at Braun Financial. And if you're in the BC area and want to talk, feel free to find us online, braunfinancial.com, or give us a call and send us an email. And as always, we'll be happy to help. So until the next time, take care and all the best. In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com.